Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host WFIU's News Bureau Chief, Sarah Whitmire. We're talking with our guests today about severe weather and climate change, and we have three guests that are joining us today. We have uh, Dr. Gabriel Filippelli, who is Director of the Center for Urban Health and Executive Director of the Environmental Resilience Institute here at Indiana University. Travis Allen O'Brien is an assistant professor of earth and atmospheric sciences at IU. And Wade Lowe is WFIU's weather correspondent, and he's studying atmospheric sciences at IU. If you have questions for us, you can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and send your questions there. We're at, at noon edition. And we're still doing this show remotely, so you can't call in. Hopefully, very soon, we'll be able to go back in the studio and be able to take some calls as well, but not today. So thank you all for being here with us today. And I, I wanted to start by, uh, I'll start with, with uh, Travis O'Brien and, and ask about the um, idea that we've had so many severe weather events already this summer. Is that unusual or is it just, a, you know, we're starting to notice these more? Yeah, good afternoon, Bob, and thanks for having me here. Happy to talk to you. I mean, the short answer is yes. <laughs> There's been a lot of unusual. Um, we've seen temperature records broken in the western United States. Uh, we've seen here in Bloomington a flood that was larger than anything in the last 100 years um, in terms of rainfall. And this is, to put it simply, one of the consequences of uh, climate change. You know, the more the, the planet warms, the more heat extremes we expect to have, the more uh, rain extremes we expect to have. And this is what we see in the observational record. We've been looking at observations of temperature and rainfall for the last 100 years. And worldwide, we, we are seeing an increase in extremes. So, yeah, um, we're breaking records right and left. And that's, that's sort of the, to put it sort of uh, shortly, the new norm. All right. Uh, Dr. Filippelli, I'm going to call you Gabe for the rest of the show. hope that's all right with you. Um, you're uh, the executive director of the Environmental Resilience Institute, and uh, that's something that IU uh, has put together for its bicentennial and one of its uh, grand challenges. I know that um, you're observing the weather and climate change very closely. So how surprising has been this summer for you? Well, uh, thanks, Bob, and thanks for having me on the show. Um, it has been shocking to me and uh, a whole host of my um, other colleagues, climate change research colleagues. And I, I guess when I say shocking, what I mean is that um, everyone expects this to happen. The climate models show that what used to be extremes in terms of, uh, let's say, precipitation, heavy precipitation or uh, temperature, uh, those extreme boundaries will keep getting pushed farther and farther out. Um, and that's largely because of the warming mechanism of, of greenhouse gas emissions, right? Carbon dioxide and a warm, a warmer atmosphere holds more water as well. So not only uh, can it, can it be warmer, but also it can be wetter depending on, on the region you're in. But I guess nobody expected it to come on so strong as, as Travis mentioned it, it caught us all by surprise, even though it is in the models it's almost like we had a lot of natural buffering systems on our planet over the last 40 years, such that temperatures kept nudging up a little bit higher and a little bit higher. Uh, you know, rainfall extremes nudged up a little bit higher and here in Indiana, but this year broke everything, 
Uh, and so I think it's a good lesson for all of us to remember that um, we can't rely on, on nature to, to fix itself. Uh, we really need to be thinking about the major drivers of climate change and starting to get ahead of that. All right, I want to bring Wade in now. And Wade, you, you come at this from a little bit different perspective. You're just starting, um, or you're in the midst of studying atmospheric sciences at IU and studying the weather. Um, I wanted to get your observations on what this summer has been like and, and on your reasons for wanting to go into this area of study. Oh, gosh, Bob. Well, first of all, thank you for having me onto the show. Um, I will say this summer and this year as a whole has been extremely surprising for me, at least, uh, weather-wise, um, with the wildfires going on in the western part of the U.S. and Canada, um, and just all kinds of <laughs> extreme weather events that are happening. I feel like Travis and Gabe really explained it well um, with everything that's going on, and I am interested in what they have to say as well. Okay, thank you. I, well, I want to go back to, to Travis and Gabe and and talk about some of these specific things that are happening. You know, we've talked, uh, you just talked about the temperatures rising. We've talked about the extreme rains. Um, Wade mentioned the wildfires. I think those are, those have been happening now for the last three or four years and they're becoming really the norm out in California and now spreading throughout the, the West. What does climate change have to do with these wildfires? Can you just explain it to, to us, Travis? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so there's a couple elements here, and it's I, I think it's important when thinking about climate change. Uh, often people think global warming, and so temperature is the first thing that comes to mind. But there's a lot of other things that change along with climate change. So we've talked about increases in rainfall. As Gabe said, the atmosphere holds more water. But one of the flip side consequences of that is... Um, Globally, if you average the amount that it rains everywhere, that number is pretty close to fixed. It can increase a little bit, but it can't change much. So if it rains more when it's raining, that means it has to be raining less frequently elsewhere. That means also an increase in drought. Um, and along with that, warmer temperatures lead to higher evap evaporation and transpiration from plants. So more water loss from the soils. So drier conditions in some areas, and in particular, there, there's a... Uh, really sort of seminal study about uh, 15 years ago that showed uh, that one of the consequences of climate change is that the wettest areas in the world tend to get wetter, the driest areas tend to get drier. Well, the western United States in the latitudes we're in, we're right at the edge of sort of the, the dry zone of the subtropics. That's an area that we do expect will get drier. So that's part of it. Um, along with that, the, the uh, so you've got the uh, increase in drought, increase in evaporation, so increasing dryness of the soil, um, and warmer temperatures, those all lead to in, uh, increased ingredients for fire. So um, a researcher, uh, Dr. Danielle Tuma, who's at University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, put out a paper just in the last year showing that um, if you look at a, a quantity called the fire weather index, which is commonly used to forecast fire weather. Um, it takes into account temperature, humidity, um, pre-existing uh, moisture of the soil and so on, that we expect that as the climate warms, the risk of extreme fire weather will increase, you know, two times, uh, three times, four times over the next century. So the risk of, you know, one in 20 year fire weather event becomes the one in 10 or the one in five year uh, fire weather event. So that's part of what we're seeing. But I, I have to say here, I'd be disingenuous if I didn't rec uh, acknowledge that the other part of the increase in fires that we're seeing is an increase in ignition. And some of that is human caused. So it's another human caused element, but it's not necessarily the anthropogenic climate change. It's um, there's more people <laughs> and more people leads to more accidents in some cases, not accidents of ignitions. And so that's also playing a role. I think one of the things that you said there that, that uh, I find just fascinating is this idea that the, the drier places are getting drier and the wetter places are getting wetter. I mean, you can, you can hear people who don't study climate change say, well, you know, we can't have it both ways. We're getting more rain. And, and yet, uh, you know, you say we're having more droughts and how can that be? But I think you just explained that pretty well. So I appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, uh, to follow up with um, Gabe Filippelli also when, when thinking about the Environmental Resilience Institute and, and studying what Indiana can do, Travis just talked about um, these, these conditions which are going to be um, prime for wildfires. Are those going to, they're, 
I assume that they're going to affect places like Indiana and places that haven't really been affected by wildfires at some time. That's my assumption. Am I on the right track? Uh, you are, in fact. And in our own work, our Environmental Resilience Institute supported work showed that uh, last week, for example. So if you, while the wire, wildfires were raging in Oregon, um, you could actually look at a map of fine particulate matter. Sometimes it, people call it, uh, researchers call it PM 2.5. That just means the really fine stuff that is um, in the atmosphere and is emitted from wildfires, for example. Uh, you could see this swath of air pollution heading all the way across the Midwest and into the East Coast. So uh, we have a network of air quality monitors here in Indianapolis, about 20 or so, that charts um, air, air quality o- over, the, you know, over the year. Uh, they're continuously uh, record data. What you saw is that these, the concentration of these, this particulate matter went up by about three times uh, from wildfires that were 2,000 miles away. So think about that, Bob. You've got the wildfires don't just impact the communities there in Oregon, although the impact is, you know, catastrophic, obviously, Um, but they're impacting human health uh, all across the country. And and this fine fine particulate matter is what we've linked pretty strongly to uh, poor outcomes. And by what I mean, by that, I mean asthma, asthma attacks, pulmonary disease, and so forth. And they even led to um, the city of Indianapolis uh, calling uh, for uh, these no zone action days last week uh, and this week even to try to keep people out of the outdoors from from being outdoors where they are exposed to this fine particulate. So um, this shows that that climate change uh, is not restricted to one region, even impacts like wildfires can uh, can sweep across the country indeed. So, Wade, I know you did a story for us last week about um, just the skies and how it looked hazy out. Can you talk a little bit about your reporting and this idea of hazy air? Of course. And I uh, relate very closely with uh, Dr. Filippelli. Um, In my report uh, last week, I had discussed the haze and I actually included a satellite image from the National Weather Service Um, where the haze was actually visible from the satellites. And uh, you could see uh, that it traveled even as far east as into the Atlantic Ocean and uh, throughout the New England area as well. Uh, I believe that we need to move out of this mindset that just because there are issues happening 2,000 miles away, such as these wildfires in California, um, that it doesn't mean that it's not our problem. It is our problem, um, and it's affecting our air and our health as well. Um, and with this haze, I uh, recall that uh, we actually had been advised to uh, reduce our car usage and turn down our thermostats. And I know that the governor of California also just um, expanded uh, the uh, water emergency um, on July 8th, where he's requesting people to use 15% water in order to uh, conserve it because of the droughts that have been happening there since uh, 2000. They're calling it a mega drought, and uh, it's just having extremely high impacts there on the West Coast, and those uh, indirect effects are happening here in Indiana as well. Wade, I want to follow up with that too, because I know some of the stories that I, I've edited from you, you talk about the uh, the heat and the heat indices and how um, how warm it's really been in in Indiana this summer. Can you talk a little bit about you know what the heat indices is and also just about what this summer's been like here in the Bloomington area? Yes, um, the heat indices are actually di- considered a different thing than the temperature. The temperature is basically just a measurement of how quick the air air molecules are moving, giving us a sense of what it might feel like outside. But the heat indices also include uh, the humidity as well and the human body's ability to cool itself down when the temperatures are um, higher outside. So with the humidity that's been here in Indiana, the heat heat indices have been much higher. And also with these um, heat domes that have been happening, if you've heard of them, 
especially uh, in Washington, where they've had heat indices of over 110 degrees. Um, we're noticing that those are starting to move farther eastward into the central United States um, with the jet stream kind of pushing it farther east. So we're going to see these um, high indices, um, which also uh, could create uh, potential health risks as well, uh, should anyone be spending a lot of physical activity or time outside in these extremely high heat indices. And Bob, can I add to that uh, what Wade said? Because he's it's exactly right. And think about think about uh, the the example that that Wade brought up. These high heat index values in Washington, for example. And this is in a state where um, less than fifty percent of the people in coastal Washington have air conditioning. Right. So one of the point of this, uh, you know, you hear this a lot that at, that it will. At a certain heat index, it's unlivable, right? You hear this, it's, it's unlivable. Well, it's livable if you have air conditioning, right? Because you're modifying the air temperature profile. But um, it, uh, in the case of, of Seattle, um, if you don't have air conditioning because you've rarely ever needed to use it before, well, you're in real health risk. And, and uh, I'm going to kind of globalize that. A paper just came out uh, several days ago that reported that vast... Uh, portions of populations of our planet will exceed that livability uh, threshold um, in the coming decades. Again, I'm not saying that vast portions will uh, will now become absolutely unlivable, but it does require cooling, and cooling does require um, other energy sources, right? So this is a real this can be a real global uh, health uh, concern as well. Travis, well, and I want to add into that that uh, I mean it's uh, is. As uh, Wade alluded, this—it's not just a local problem. These heat waves. I mean, are, I, I think this winter actually illustrated the national energy grid infrastructure really plays a role here. I mean, as, as Gabe's saying, it's livable as long as you have AC. But if the power systems are strained to the point of not being able to deliver power where it's needed, then e- even places with air conditioning, places like hospitals, for example, uh, where you know they'll have to go on backup generators or whatnot. Um, uh, so, I mean, that's a pretty big impact if power goes out. And that's that's something that we've seen happen over the last 10, 15 years, areas, times in areas where there's big heat waves. They're often uh, power has to be reduced because the power systems can't handle it. And I think just to, to bring it back to, you know, those of us who don't study the, the weather and atmospheric sciences, um, you know, we all talk about the weather, though. We all look at it. We all study it. We all talk about it to a certain degree. And when you talk about these heat indexes and the, and what's happening with the heat domes, I mean, these are situations where the temperature outside might be 91 degrees, but it feels like it's 105, for for lack of a better term. And, and those are starting to become more frequent. I think Sarah has a question. Sarah? Well, I, earlier in the program, we were talking about all of these things kind of happening at once. Gabriel, can you, I mean, why do you think we're seeing all of these things happening right now? Wildfires, flooding, extreme heat. Well, um, I think I don't want to overplay the, the, the fact that weather is weather, right? It varies year to year. And um, this might be a just tragically um, uh, um, sort of out of bounds year. That's what's, what some people are calling it. But nevertheless, I, I think it's, that, for example, two of those things you mentioned are actually directly related. This 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 extreme heat and drought uh, in the West, for example, those are the, those um, both lead then to the conditions Travis described to become real ignition points for wildfires, and and that's exacerbated um, not just by the fact that there's more local emissions. Uh, I mean, sorry, local ignition possibilities, but. Uh, forest management has changed quite a bit as communities have carved their way into some of what formerly used to be forested land. Um, we those forces can't naturally burn, right? A lot of forests are, uh, for lack of a better word, designed uh, as an e- as an ecosystem to burn it on occasion, reducing their their threat as extreme. Uh, as an extreme wildfire event, right? It, yes, they can burn, but they have less of that dry understory to burn. But because we don't allow that anymore, because we don't want to burn our communities down, that that component, that tinder, has gotten even worse. And uh, and so it's not not just from climate change alone; it's from the human 
development on this. Now, if if I were to come back next summer and see nothing, you know, wild in the way of, you know, uh, wildfires and and maybe there's more rain in California and there's not so flooding in, in Indiana, you know, one might say, well, see, climate change isn't real. But in fact, all of these things are consistent with climate change. So I'm not saying every summer or every year is going to be like this year, but they're more likely to be like this year than not. Gabriel, it, it, just a, a, a follow-up sort of that perhaps either you or, or Travis can take, but it seems like during the pandemic, you know, we saw things getting better. People weren't emitting as much greenhouse gases Some factories had temporarily closed. People weren't driving as much. So is it naive to sort of um, have been thinking that we would have helped with climate change and maybe wouldn't have seen such a have seen these changes this extreme weather travis do you want to take a stab at that um actually i I think gabe might have a better perspective i'll let him start if you don't mind i'll just start off um and then turn it back over to travis Uh, that is certainly one of the things we expected we expected to see a reduction in carbon emissions a reduction in pollution from vehicle sources um, and so forth. And that is, in fact, what we saw in the heart of the shutdown of the pandemic. Um, we have a paper in review right now that documents how much better air quality was in U.S. cities because, of course, people weren't commuting to work so much. Um, and, and in fact, our carbon emissions as a globe went down. But here's the, the, the bit of a troubling thing or a reality check. Yes, they went down, but they went down only by 6.9%. So 6.9% seems like a big number, but the Paris Climate Agreement, the models that drive what our target should be by 2030 say we have to be down by 50% year in and year out by 2030 and another 50% by 2040. So, so yes, it seemed like a temporarily, it was almost like a vision of what we could be, clearer skies, less carbon emission. But even though we, we, we shut down all of our personal choices, our cars and all that stuff, we only dropped by a slightly less than 7% in carbon emissions. And guess what? We are right back up to where we were before. Um, so uh, yes, it would seem like it would be good, but these kinds of systemic changes have to, have to start getting baked into our system. Otherwise, we'll just go back to the status quo. And Travis, I'm sure you have a more refined uh, climatological explanation as well. Well, no, I would I just add to that that so I, I think you I like the phrase you used, a, a vision of what could be. And I think one of the important other things to think about is how to get there. I mean, I, I, I bring this up often when I talk about climate change because it's really easy to get stuck in the sort of doom and gloom mentality of, oh gosh, there's just the problem's so large, there's nothing we can do about it. But there is. And and we can we can address climate change without reducing quality of life necessarily. So there there's a, a really important report, I think probably one of the most important reports to have come out in the last decade called the Frameworks for Deep Decarbonization. And it talks about ways that with existing technology now with a lot of governmental investment on the order of, you know, what we did during the pandemic in terms of uh, in sending money directly to people, funding uh, funding uh, campaigns to find vaccines and whatnot, uh, you know, trillions of dollars, that we can uh, convert to energy sources that are less carbon intensive, uh, convert to energy uses that are less carbon intensive, so uh, less coal, um, cars that are running on uh, electricity or um biofuels rather than directly in gasoline and that we we can actually reduce emissions down to something something that would get us into the safe zone and we we could do that now it just requires you know public investment in it um so that's yeah that's my my take on it I wanted to ask Wade if he had anything you wanted to to follow up with on what uh, Travis and Gabe have been saying before I go to another topic um, I feel like they covered it for the most part. I, if I had anything to add, it would be about our uh, infrastructure systems that we have in place to deal with um, extreme weather events, um, such as this like heat dome that we're experiencing and other uh, precipitation related issues and other uh, weather extremes. Uh, because I feel like if we could um, fix it at the source, that would also be extremely productive to um, help alleviate the consequences of such uh, extreme weather events 
um, at the same time as uh, resolving uh, these extreme weather events. So like in the like in the heat wave in Chicago in 1995, um, over 700 people passed away because they didn't have uh, air conditioning. And that's an air or that's an infrastructure issue just in that people who live in Chicago would not expect to see temperatures as high as 125 degrees heat indexes. Um, but if we would be able to um, be more prepared for situations like that, then we would be able to um, suffer a lot less in those situations should we be prepared for those extreme weather events to occur. And like Travis had said, we're already, we already do have the technology to become greener and lower our greenhouse gas emissions, um, especially with the electric cars. I believe Ford was going to release all electric uh, pickup trucks by like 2024 or something like that. So we're already seeing these advances towards a greener future. Um, and it just needs to be pushed a lot harder and more urgently um, ever since 1970 when the first Earth Day was established. Um, we just need to put the pedal to the metal and understand that this is a, um, a climate change crisis anymore. It's not just about like global warming. This is a crisis we're in now. I'm going to follow up on that in just a minute, but I want to give our contact information again. We're talking with three guests about climate change in the recent extreme weather events. You can join the live chat by tweeting at Noon Edition, and you can also email us to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Um, Dr. Filippelli mentioned the Paris Agreement, and, you know, we can't talk about climate change without getting at least somewhat political because there, there has been political resistance to it, um, to even uh, acknowledging the problem and I just wanted to ask the three of you as science, scientists and scientists in training about the importance of something like the Paris Agreement, which the U.S. pulled out of in the last administration. So, Dr. Philippi, how important is that agreement in your view? I think it's critically important because it sends it sends the message, right? And it sends the message, a global message that that this is these are the targets we need to be mindful of before we start getting into a climate area where uh, where we don't really know um, kind of what what the next what the next bits will be. What I mean by that is we get out of this sort of safe zone and into a, a, a climatic regime that might bring us like these extreme events that we've just experienced, but maybe times five. Right, so it, that's the Paris Climate Accord uh, provides that that um, global message, right, to countries, and it lets countries sort of safely develop and, and and develop their own rules and regulations. But here's the key: is that, and businesses, as as Wade mentioned, businesses see the writing on the wall. They want to go electric with their vehicles, right? Um, they don't want to uh, be bad guys in terms of climate or the environment. But what they really need is very clear than national scale targets, right? They need rules and regulations that um, that they know will stick and will be there in 10 years. So when they put a big investment in like a electric infrastructure system for charging, right? That they know that it's gonna pay off for them. So so they look then to the national government uh, for for their messaging. And of course, the, the last administration, its message was, you know, all, uh, remove all stops on carbon emissions. Let's just go, go, go. Uh, and this this administration, on the other hand, has returned to a trend that's been there for about 30 years, which is uh, that we need to do something. It's just, I think this administration is seeing with much more urgency, the urgency that Wade pointed out that we need to have. Travis? I, I agree absolutely on that. It's, it's, the Paris Agreement is so important. Um, and I, I think longevity in that's really important. I, and I, I, I'm sorry, but I have to pause for a moment because I'm, I'm venturing into the realm of opinion here. And I, uh, my opinion is not that of my funders in the Department of Energy or the Department of Defense. Um, I, I think that there, there's a lot said about longevity in uh, the Paris Agreement. So, you know, as, as Gabe was saying, uh, regional areas thinking about investing over a 10 or 15 year time period and making and being confident that that's going to pay out and that the, they'll have national support for that. Um, we, we, I mean, we, as a country, we have to commit to that. And I, the, as 
a is a speaking as a citizen who is uh, has quite a bit of knowledge about climate change and and its effects. Uh, Wade couldn't have said it better. It is a crisis. I mean, there's the uh, it's going to cost a lot of money and human lives if we don't. Uh, start dealing with climate change now. And the Paris Agreement is probably the best way to do that because it's a global agreement that gets all countries saying one and a half degrees is the limit of what we think is acceptable. Um, and as Gabe said, that that keeps us into what we think is outside of the danger zone. Even that we're not sure is outside of the danger zone. But I mean, it's probably the best that we can do. And then things like the frameworks for deep decarbonization would be our way of getting there. Um, so, All right, Wade. Uh, I feel like the Paris Climate Accord uh, would also pair extre- also pairs extremely well with the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals. Um, they released these in 2016, um, if I'm correct about that, and it's basically just 17 goals um, as a global community to increase the uh, standard of living uh, for everyone on earth and this includes things such as having like no poverty no poverty and zero hunger but um, it pairs well with the climate uh, ag- or the Paris climate agreement because it also addresses things such as clean water sanitation um, creating affordable and clean energy and having sustainable cities and communities as well as taking action on climate change and uh, wildlife on land and below water um, so with these sustainable development goals with the Paris Climate Agreement, um, I feel like we really need to focus on both of uh, these organizations and meeting these goals. Um, I find it imperative actually for the for us as a globe to try to cooperate as much as possible within these programs uh, because with something such as climate change, this is not um, just a country by country issue to deal with. Sure, some countries are able to do more uh, to address these issues than others, but this is a global effort and this is our planet together as a whole that we need to um, help increase the uh, standard of living and health of it. We're starting to get some questions in from our audience. I think Sarah's got uh, a few of them lined up. Sarah? So this first one probably for Dr. Filippelli, how do state and federal governments influence what local communities are able to do and how they're able to respond? Um, yeah, they, they do quite a bit, right? The, if you, I'll, I'll scale it down from the national down to the local. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, for example, is an agency that, um, that everyone has to adhere to. Every state has to meet these national guidelines. Um, they don't, they don't, it doesn't hurt if they exceed them, right? Uh, California regularly exceeds the emission standards, meaning it does much better than the EPA requirement. Um, so, so states can be more aggressive, more, they can be cleaner than the federal standards, but the EPA sets the standards. But then the states, the role of states is just critical. Um, the, the, the state has its own set of standards, which again, it can be more um, uh, more extreme than the national one. It ends up that our state of Indiana doesn't tend to push that extreme very, very much, right? They, they tend to just go, comply with whatever the, the, the basic standards are from the EPA. So then it becomes incumbent upon local communities. And this is where the Environmental Resilience Institute has had its biggest splash. Uh, we work directly with local, particularly smaller cities and towns who really want to engage in this in this and, and want to be part of the solution, but they don't have the capacity, the expertise to do it by themselves. So we, we actually send cohorts of trained IU students, undergrads and graduate students to spend summers in these cities and towns to help them with things like developing a, a greenhouse gas inventories, which helps the, the town uh, on its electrical bills, right? But it also helps them understand where their carbon emissions are from so that then they can come back the next year, the next cohort of fellows might come and, and assist and assist with uh, climate action plans for these cities and towns. So, so I think that, that although the national, you know, the, the national regulations uh, provide the lead uh, in a state like Indiana, where um, there's no further real guidance from the states, it's up to local cities and towns. And this is what I would have been thrilled at with being uh, leading Environmental Resilience Institute over the last couple of months is seeing the impact that we've been able to have for these cities and towns. 
All right. We have a couple other questions. Uh, one came in a little bit ago. It is, how do extreme events change the way meteorologists and climate scientists think of weather? I never considered fire or haze as part of weather. Travis? That is really apt, actually. I, I mean, just thinking about so I've been involved in climate research for the last 15 years or so, and people didn't really talk about fire um, in peer-reviewed publications. There wasn't really research on it until, you know, the last, what is it, four or five years when we've had these mega fires occurring. Now it's a really big area of research. So, I mean, I, I, I think uh, the the questioner hit the nail on the head on that one. Um, part of what we study is informed by what we're observing in real time. I mean, it's, we're seeing climate change as it happens. Um, I think that, you know, it, it really, we learn new things about each type of weather event. Um, I think this, the, the heat wave that occurred in the Western U.S. at the end of June, I mean, there were, the, the records that were broken there were in some cases, so far above the records that have been broken before, it made us take a step back and go, okay, uh, our statistical models would not have predicted this. What are we doing wrong? And so this is, you know, it teaches us how to do, uh, how to analyze the observational record better, how to better look at climate models. On the flip side of that, I I have to say, there's a paper that actually just came out uh, four days ago that actually was a little bit prescient in, in a sense. Um, it was so they, they submitted this paper well before this heat wave. But what they showed was that in simulations of future climate, and these are these are numerical models that simulate sequences of plot possible weather, and they do that in today's conditions, and they do that in conditions with higher greenhouse gases. What they found was that it's not only can you get these sort of black swan events, as they're sometimes colloquial, colloquially referred to, um, these these events that are so far that break records by so much. Um, but the, the rate at which we expect these record-breaking events to happen actually is a function of how fast the climate's warming. So th- this this has a this really plays into the Paris Accord actually because the Paris Accord says we need to limit emissions, and limiting emissions will lim- limit the rate of warming, and limiting the rate of warming then limits how often we break these records. And one of the points they they make there is that um, we often plan around the worst weather event that we've ever seen. And if we exceed that by a ton, then there's often really big impacts on that. So we need to start, and I think we made a similar point earlier on, we need to stop thinking about just what's the worst that we saw in the past, but actually start thinking about, you know, given what we might be doing in terms of emitting greenhouse gases over the next century, what might be the worst thing that could happen then? And uh, so I, I don't know, I, I guess this is a, it was a really long-winded way of saying that um, every, all of these extremes always is, is, scientists, at least for me and the people that I collaborate with, always get us thinking and always teach us new things about the weather and the climate that we hadn't experienced before. Dr. Filippelli, we got a question. It says, last week, the EU proposed legislation that would impose tariffs on polluting countries and phase out gasoline and diesel cars, but the U.S. would not be included on the list of countries where tariffs would be imposed. What message does that send? Um, I think it's the the message that politics uh, in international politics still prevails. Um, uh, you one, you know, it's it's easy to smack uh, a tariff on as a almost as a symbolic thing. I'm not saying this is symbolic, though. I think the question the the listener is um, is right on. You know that this is a really important step, but. If they uh, put a tariff on smaller countries that actually don't produce many of these goods that would be imported, well, it's not ending up making a whole lot of difference. But um, if they did it on the U.S., it would make a big difference, right? Uh, but it's not politically uh, expedient. It would be um, certainly would significantly uh, reduce our our uh, the, the the relationship between the the um, the two regions, right? Um, and so. I think a lot of these things are sort of politically motivated, uh, although in, in this case, I think it was from the right place, but they were being expedient with, um, or I guess realistic with, with how, they, how they drafted that. You have questions for us. We're talking about the weather today and, the, uh, and climate change. So we're talking about the weather and climate. If you have questions, you can send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. 
You can also go on Twitter and send us a question at Noon Edition. Go ahead, Sarah. Can can you actually, um, Dr. Filippelli, just expand on that a little bit? And um, for folks who weren't following closely what was happening with that EU agreement, can you explain what exactly they were discussing in this idea of tariffs? Um, So from my understanding, having having only seen it briefly, my understanding was that that it was one of the ways that the EU can control um, their... Uh, you know, they're doing everything they can right now in terms of their own carbon emissions um, and as well as uh, their local pollutant sources. But um, they were trying to basically send a message that, hey, we we not only are, are trying to control our own emissions, but we're also not um, outsourcing those emissions to other places and re-importing the products, right? Um, we, we have had a long history, uh, actually China right now has a long, has a deep history of doing that very thing. Uh, they can now claim a certain degree of uh, climate carbon reduction uh, because they are uh, they're engaging in uh, building out what they call the Belt and Road Initiative, which largely outsources a lot of petroleum and power production out offside out of the borders of China, but into regional countries, and ostensibly that's to produce to help. Uh, help raise the standards of some of these countries like Pakistan and, and, uh, and uh, Myanmar and, and others. But really, it's also a way to um, outsource pollution. Um, we certainly did that for a long time with our recycling stream, right? We sent this stuff to, uh, to China and, uh, and to Southeast Asia, and um, most of the recycling-related uh, pollution, and that's pretty extreme, were uh, happen in those countries, and then they re-imported clean products. So that's what the EU is trying to do, is trying to send a message that way. And um, and in terms of the U.S. thing, of course, they're not going to to impose that um, on us because we're such a such a huge trade partner. Um, so I think that's the that's the global geopolitics behind that particular play. I have a question for Wade that I want to ask about. So, Wade, am I um, am I correct to say that you're a an undergrad at IU? Yes, I'm in my I'm going into my junior year into atmospheric science at IU. Okay, so I want to ask about this as a generational um, issue. Do you find that people that you run into on a regular basis, people in your age group, people that you went to high school with, people that you're going to classes with now at the university kind of sit back and say, wow, this is a huge issue. And why haven't, why hasn't anybody been addressing this uh, before now? Yes. (laughs) Um, I feel like especially um, people within my age group uh, going to college, et cetera, are especially um, aware of the climate in the world right now. And everyone in my age group, for the most part, realizes how huge of an issue it is and uh, why there's such a huge call to get people in uh, the political authoritative positions to make these changes. Because um, speaking from my perspective, I feel like people uh, more close to my age group uh, are really becoming more more excited to try to implement more uh, change on the large scale. Um, we've seen similar aspects uh, involved with the BLM movements, not to get too political, but I feel like there are similar things happening uh, with the younger generations in regards to climate change. Um, it's becoming much more of a bigger issue and people are realizing it and they realize that change needs to happen now. Now, it seems to me that that about two years ago, before we had COVID and before we had, uh, I won't say that the um, social justice movement wasn't wasn't with us then, it certainly was, but it seems like two years ago, climate change may have been the number one issue that people were talking about. And then we had COVID and we've had so many issues with the Black Lives Matter movement and, and the social justice movement that perhaps climate change wasn't the number one topic. Am I, uh, again, I'm just, I'm testing my reality here. Wade, do you think that's true? I feel like a large part of um, 
the popularity of climate change being an issue is uh, the media. I feel like the media has a very large influence, especially with the younger generations and how we view um, issues as large as this one. Um, before the pandemic, uh, we were really interested in uh, increasing the awareness of climate change because there were um, viral popularity videos and trends going around such as uh, not using straws uh, with the famous hashtag save the turtles. Um, and then that was also towards the same time period that Starbucks decided to eliminate straws from their uh, cups and such. Uh, so with things like that and uh, the younger generations being more technologically inclined and online, I feel like it has a very large influence in how we view climate change and the health of our earth as a whole. Okay, I appreciate that answer. Um, Gabe, we've had another question come in and it's one that I was gonna ask you about as well from your position with the, uh, the Environmental Resilience Institute. And this question uh, that came in is talking about the long-term and short-term consequences of climate change in the Midwest. What will some of the infrastructure solutions be here in Indiana? That's a great question. That's something that uh, obviously the, the Resilience Institute fo focuses on quite a bit. And the way we do that is we use what we call downscaled models. So we have the Resilience Institute has helped uh, fund these models, which start being able to define Indiana, not just as a whole monolithic state, but rather in, in terms of its, uh, if its smaller scale climate zones. Um, and, and from that information, then you can start getting down to this, you know, the the city or county level in terms of what you expect to see the, the likely climate, let's say in 2030 and 2040. And the reason why that's important is that's kind of the lifespan of infrastructure, right? Um, and, and so uh, some of this work has informed uh, Dr. Chen Zhu's uh, work on something called Future Water, which is a product where a person can actually visualize what their own watershed will look like in terms of uh, of how wet the soil is and so forth in the future. So farmers can use that tool. Um, one of the things that we, we've been uh, working on quite a bit though, is this idea of expanding uh, what we mean by in infrastructure. Uh, re resilience is uh, defined as an ability, you know, of a system to change with outside pressures, but not necessarily to change in a way that's, that's you know, markedly worse. Uh, hopefully it's, you know, change will occur, but it, you know, life will go on kind of thing. What, um, uh, what we've been working on mostly is, is, is how to augment what we call, what we normally think of infrastructure, like a big pipe for sewage, uh, and augment that with other kind of infrastructure, like forests, urban forests. And I'll give you one quick example of that. Uh, here in Indianapolis, we've gone through a very expensive, uh, huge infrastructure uh, upgrade with our, for our sewers. Up, up until a couple of years, um, if it rained even more than a quarter inch, uh, the, our, our toilets would run into our waterways, for example. Um, obviously that's not okay by these EPA national standards. So we had to do something about it. And the something that we did was build a big tunnel underground. So it takes the sewage and instead dumps it into this big tunnel. And then we can treat it in a way that won't overcome our wastewater treatment plants, right? They kind of suck it out of the big tunnel um, slowly over time. Unfortunately, that tube, that tunnel was designed for our climate in uh, the period from 2000 to 2002. That's when the agreement, uh, the window of, of climate uh, was used for our, for our build out, our gray infrastructure build out. You know, we've already exceeded extreme rainfall by 16% since then right? Only in 18 years. And our model projections show that it'll continue to do so by another about 16% in the next 30 years. So, um, so that's an infrastructure of fixed volume that's already designed to fail. And so the only way to augment that is to expand our thinking of resilience, including urban forests, uh, urban wetlands, um, dedicated space that aren't buildings or streets, but rather are, are, are landscapes that absorb water so that we can let the, let the city act more like a natural sponge that most landscapes really are. So these are our main challenges. In Indiana, one of them really is this extreme rainfall event. And so the Resilience Institute is doing all it can to better inform cities and towns about how to prepare. This, I mean, this sounds similar to, to some developments being required or asked to be, um, you know, LEED certified or to have um, 
buildings to be LEED certified or to have solar panels or to have rain gardens on the on the roof. I mean, is this sort of similar to that? Um, it, it sure is, but it ends up that cities, whenever it comes to a large development, it seems as if cities like Indianapolis tends, tend to buckle under the needs of the developer rather than the needs of the environment. So um, for every example that you just provided, which, which are along the lines of what I was talking about, there's plenty more examples where there's a large apartment complex paving all over. And their one requirement was to have like a, a 20 foot setback from, from the nearby stream. And in this, this case that I'm mentioning now, the city actually allowed them a variance to allow them to build right up to the stream because they said, well, I already have a street there. So cities just have to be really vigilant and have to build, build uh, development plans that um, put, the, put the environment uh, on the front burner instead of the back burner. Okay, I have one question. Uh, this came in from one of our listeners, and I want to ask to see if uh, either Travis or, or Gabe might have an answer. It says, why do people, including on this show, keep talking about how much electric cars will help without pointing out that without a major shift in electricity generation, which does not seem to be happening, electric cars will not help? I'm really glad that the listener pointed that out, actually. I, I very vaguely alluded to that when I was talking about the frameworks for deep decarbonization, uh, I, I, and I should have been more specific. So I was uh, talking about decarbonizing energy sources, and that is one of the key three key pillars of decarbonization, uh, exactly. Um, you know, moving from uh, solar and wind and uh, biofuels rather than fossil fuels, where we're digging up carbon that has not been in the carbon system from uh, millions of years and putting into the atmosphere. So that's, that is really key. Yeah. Okay. That's a, we have, um, really no time left, but we could go on for a really long time and maybe we'll have all three of you back sometime in the near future to continue this conversation. I want to thank our three guests, uh, Gabriel Filippelli, Travis Allen O'Brien and Wade Lowe for being here with us today. For co-host Sarah Whitmire, our producers, Benta Boutier, and John Bailey, our engineer, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.